0: The Italian American Podcast, the first podcast dedicated to helping Italian Americans learn about their heritage. We talk to experts, authors, and everyday Italian Americans on all things Italian, from traditions, culture, food, genealogy, travel, and more. I'm your host, Anthony Fasano, and I have with me my co-host, Dolores Alfieri. And we do have another interesting episode for you today. It's a little bit different. We've spoken a little bit in the past to authors lately that have written books about either Italian-American authors or talking about Italian-American traditions. This time, we reached out to an Italian-American, Rick Zullo, actually has a website, rickzulo.com, kind of a website about Rome. And basically, Rick's story, and we'll get into it in the interview, but just to give you a little bit of a preview, Rick is an Italian-American, grew up in a very Italian-American family, and then moved to Rome. He lives there. He met his wife there. So, The perspective is, okay, I heard a lot about this place, Italy, that I'm from. Now I'm actually going to go live there. And we dive into that with him. It's pretty interesting. Dolores, how are you doing today?
2: I'm doing well, Anthony. Yeah, I mean, Rick was a lot of fun to talk to. He's living this really cool life where he lives in both Italy and America with his family. So it was nice to kind of just talk to somebody who, I don't know, it felt like the conversation was regular people, one of the guys. We were all just talking and like having a lot of fun. So it was nice.
0: Yeah, it was cool. It was good. to, t- And that's what, kind of what we want to do here on the show. I mean, we love having the really big-name authors like the Adriana Trigiani, who was an awesome episode. But we also, of course, like to hear from everyday Italian-Americans that are just out there doing their thing and finding different experiences like that. We like to mix these things together. So it's an exciting episode, Yeah, and we're excited to bring it to you. But before we do, I do want to mention that the National Italian-American Foundation, also known as NIAF, is now an official sponsor of the Italian American podcast. We're really excited about this partnership. NIAF is a nonprofit organization based in Washington, D.C. that serves as a resource for the Italian American community. By preserving the Italian American heritage and culture, they promote and inspire a very positive image and legacy of Italian Americans, which is very important for Italian Americans. And they also work to strengthen and empower ties between the United States and Italy. A lot of information's on their website at www.niaf.org. And I'm going to turn over to Dolores who's going to talk a little bit about some things that are coming up with NIAF and some things that she recently, actually an event that she recently attended. Dolores?
2: Yeah. So Anthony, I had the pleasure of attending Italy in the White House, a conversation on historical perspectives, which took place recently. So this was a NIAF event and it was really beautiful and so classy. I met such great people. The new ambassador to Italy was there and there was lots of wine and lots of food. They did this really just such a delicious luncheon where they basically recreated White House state dinners with Italian presidents of the past so it was just such a nice event to be at. And, you know, if that is any indication of the type of events that NIAF does, I'm really looking forward to continuing you know, to attend them. So with that, let me tell you about a couple of things coming up. Join the National Italian American Foundation in celebrating La Tavola di San Giuseppe, which is the Feast of St. Joseph, of course, or St. Joseph's Table, on Wednesday, March 16th, from 5 to 7 p.m., The event will be held at NIAF headquarters, which is located at 1860 1860 19th Street Northwest in Washington, D.C. The event is free and open to the public, and there will be fresh zeppoli. NIAF is just asking that if you do go, you just bring a non-perishable food donation to St. Joseph's Table. All food donations will go to the parish of Holy Rosary's Lenten Food Drive, which benefits local food banks. For more information, visit niaf.org. And of course, we'll also link to it in the show notes for this episode. And last but certainly not least, join the National Italian American Foundation in New York City on April 28th at 6:30 p.m. for a memorable evening at the legendary Cipriani 42nd Street. Celebrating our heritage at the New York Gala. NIAF will honor distinguished Italian Americans, including the new Baseball Hall of Fame inductee, Mike Piazza. Tickets and sponsorship opportunities are available now at niaf.org forward slash NYC.
0: Awesome, yeah, and we're really glad to bring the information to you for NIAF and to work with them because we're both members and we think it's a really important organization, everything they do. So with that, I'm going to give you a quote here that's going to bring us into our main segment and our interview with Rick Zullo, and the quote is from Giuseppe Verdi, and it is, You may have the universe if I may have Italy. All right, now it's time for our main segment of the Italian-American podcast today, and we're pretty excited to have Rick Zulo with us. Rick is an American writer, teacher, and relentless Italophile. He was uh, born in Chicago, raised in Florida, but always dreamt of Italy. In 2010, he left his career in the United States to live in Rome, where he met his wife. Uh, when he's not writing for his blog, he enjoys exploring the hidden areas of Italy and studying the Italian language, trying to become fully fluent before his two-year-old daughter, Dimitra, beats him to it. Rick, welcome to the Italian-American podcast.
1: Hey, thanks, Anthony. Great. I'm, good job on the intro there. I appreciate that.
0: <laughs> We're excited to have you. We've heard a lot about you, and your website is is a wonderful resource, which we'll talk about that for the listeners as well. But really, the reason we wanted to have Rick on here is because Rick is an Italian-American, grew up uh, as an Italian-American in America, and then decided to move to, to Italy. and And we want to talk to Rick about that today. So, Rick again, welcome aboard. Why don't you start off by telling us about before we get into the move to Italy, just tell us about growing up as an Italian American and maybe tell us a little bit about your childhood and some of your memories.
1: Well, you know, I grew up in Chicago until I was about eight, and that's that's when my family moved down to Florida. But those first eight years were important because I lived in one of those you know three flat apartments where <laughs> we lived on the on the basement floor my grandparents lived on the the middle floor and my great grandparents lived on the top floor yeah wow. and and so you know it was really neat having everybody in the same house and of course we all had dinner together every night and you know my great grandparents I only knew my great grandmother my other great grandparents had passed by the time I was born but um she was from calabria and you know still Cooked the old way and talked Italian. She she learned English as well, but uh, you know she was a direct connection with that with that heritage and and you know I, I never really appreciated it at the time when I was growing up. Uh, she wound up passing when I was about thirteen, but uh, I did get to spend quite a bit of time with her, and um, you know it was really that connection, a direct connection to you know the old country that um, you know that we talk about.
0: Hmm. That's great. Yeah. And that's uh, obviously something you hear a lot with Italians, you know, everyone lives in the same house, the same building. And again, it it goes back to that sense of community that we've talked about so much on this podcast so far. So, Rick, take us a little bit through school and then, you know, how did you eventually make the transition to deciding to go to Italy?
1: Yeah, well, you know, I th- I think once we did move to Florida, you know, I, I lost a little bit of that connection, which I had taken for granted, you know, in, up in Chicago because we we kept going back up to visit the family, you know, at least once a year, even after we moved. And I, I think maybe that transition sort of was the first sort of spark to, to make me think, mm, you know, boy, I'd really like to, to have that. And we didn't because we didn't really have much family down here at the time. And later, some of my family did follow us down here. But I guess that's sort of what started it off for me is wanting to connect with that, with that Italian American culture and maybe led me to question further back, you know, all the way back to Italy. And maybe that's where this, the beginning is, if it were.
0: All right. So take us to that point in time. So you grew up in Chicago, you moved to Florida, you you grew up as an Italian American here, you had some connections with your family. Take us through the thought process when you originally decided that you were going to possibly, or going to move to Italy, what was going through your mind?
1: The move uh, actually finally became sort of a spontaneous thing in the end. But, uh, you know, I had a couple of short trips there where I had spent like three months. It's actually a pretty long time, but, you know, it's the long as we can go without a visa. So, you know, I, I had spent two trips there at three months at a time and uh, sort of testing the waters a little bit. And on that second trip is when I met my future wife. So, I had to leave the country because my visa expired or my tourist visa, the 90-day visa expired. So I came back to the U.S. and, you know, had to do some serious thinking and and said, well, you know, (laughs) it's now or never. So I got the the permanent visa and uh, and decided to move back. I mean, it it was really spontaneous, actually. But I think it was being there in Italy and in that environment that sort of, you know, those two test trips, if you will, made me feel comfortable with the move because I think to just do it without ever having spent an extended period of time there in other words only like a vacation it would be tough it would be a really tough thing to do but I I think I already felt pretty comfortable with it so
2: we should say that Rick right now you're in Florida because you you mentioned down here several times so right now you're in Florida but you normally you live in Rome right let's explain that for the listeners so that's clear
1: yeah, well, you know, as I said, my wife is an Italian citizen, and uh, so we've been going back and forth for a couple of years trying to work out the immigration issue on both sides. You know, the, the green card process here is, is a little bit extensive. In other words, it, it, you have to be in the country for a while before they'll issue you a green card. So, you know, we've had large chunks of time in both countries in the last couple of years trying to establish residency and get our legal permissions. So that's kind of what's going on with that. Okay. But at this point, I feel pretty connected with both places, and, and you know, I, I guess that we want our daughter to feel that way is, is, the, mm-hmm. is the number one thing. Keep her foot in both cultures and learn both languages and know both families and all of that. So that's sort of our motivation right now for kind of going back and forth a lot is to, is to keep her engaged in both cultures.
2: Oh, what a lucky girl.
1: She's really cute too. I mean, she speaks both languages. I mean, she probably speaks Italian better than me and she speaks English better than my wife. So, you know, it's not going to be long until she's correcting us and translating everything. So, <laughs> that's she's terrific. But, oh, yeah,
2: she's, I bet it's adorable to hear her go back and forth in the languages.
1: It is. And of course, you know, she mixes them together sometimes still. I mean, she hasn't quite worked it all out entirely. And there's some words that she prefers in one language or the other, but uh, it's cute to watch her learn that. And it's amazing how fast it happens too.
2: Yeah, it's a great, it's a great way to introduce them to languages just right off the bat. I mean, the reason I can understand Italian so well is because I grew up around everybody speaking it and I don't ever remember learning it. It just was there.
1: Dolores, before we were on air, you were telling me that your parents were born in Italy. What area were they from?
2: So they're from uh Provincia di Avellino, so down, you know, near Naples, those small right. little villages in southern Italy. Uh specifically, my mother is from Baiano and my father is from Saviano.
1: Oh okay, great. Well that's yeah. not too far from my family. One side is from Calabria but the other side is from Molise, which is very close to those sort of provincial areas of uh, around Napoli and it's it's a similar dialect and similar food, I think, and, and just a um, similar lifestyle there. Not many people go to Molise, but um, right. I, did go, I did go check it out once. It's it's pretty cool.
2: I was going to say, have you been? Yeah, you've been there.
1: Yeah, I went there one time for just like four or five days just to see the village where my great-grandfather came from. And it's pretty cool. You know, it, t- it took forever to get there, up one mountain, down another, then up one more. And, uh, you know, a little village that was, I think they said it was like, 2,000 people when he lived mm. there. And now it's like 800. So, mm-hmm. you know, these, those little villages are starting to become depopulated a little bit.
0: So Rick, let me ask you this, because we talked a little bit about you moved to Italy, which is obviously a big move. And I'm sure that there's a lot of Italian Americans that dream of this idea of actually moving back to the quote unquote motherland and living there. Mm-hmm. But you didn't just move to Italy. I mean, you've got You've got this website that you created <laughs> that is a resource for travelers to Rome and Italy, not just Rome, but Italy in general. Like you said, you're married now to an Italian woman, you have a daughter. So, so really, like this was a major life-changing thing for you. But tell us how you got into the, the website idea and, and starting to try to help other people that are traveling to Italy.
1: Well, yeah, I think one of the toughest things for me, here's the old story. I mean, you know, you go there and uh, you think everything's going to be easy. Well, I got my visa and now I'm living here. I'm just going to go get my residency card. Well, then you encounter the notorious Italian bureaucracy. I just got so frustrated. I couldn't find any resources to help me with the permesso di soggiorno, which is the residency card. You know, it was a lot of trial and error on my part. I spent hours, days even standing in lines and going back and forth to the post office and I said, there's got to be somebody out there who knows how to do this. And it turns out there really wasn't, or at least no one who was sharing it online. So that's where it started with that. I was just trying to help people with that. And then secondarily, I was teaching English at the time. And that's sort of the one job you can easily get there in Rome anyway, is is to you know teach English as a foreign language to the Italians. And so that was the other thing I blogged about in the beginning was how to get a job and get certified and teach English in Rome. So I think it was more out of a necessity of my own necessity that I was kind of frustrated. I was like, you know, I'm just going to share my journey and hopefully it'll help others.
0: I got to tell you, Rick, I've been through your website quite a bit and it's awesome and it's got a lot of really good resources and and we're going to link to that in the show notes and I'll let Rick talk about it a little bit more, but let me ask you this. So you've done this now and what are your plans with the site? Do you just continue to add content? Are you updating it? And how's that work for you? Is it becoming kind of like something that you're doing on a very regular basis?
1: I actually slacked a little this last month, but in general, yeah, I mean, what's happened now is I think it's expanded. Like I've said, in the beginning, it was very niche down. It was just a very sort of specific resource for expats and, and would-be expats who wanted to move to Italy. And I sort of branched out now into more of the travel stuff. And uh, I, I still love talking about the culture. That's my favorite thing, to find the little cultural idiosyncrasies and, and you know our expectations versus the reality. But I think you know a lot of companies start contacting me and wanting to you know, work with me. And, and so, you know, I go visit their agriturismo, or even sometimes the local tourist board will invite me to come check out their area. Like I went to Levanto last year. So this is near the Cinque Terre. And they asked me to come up there and spend a couple of days with them. and They show me around. So it's becoming more of that, more of a, yeah, nice. yeah, more of an ambassador kind of thing, I guess, in a way.
2: So Rick, I, I remember growing up when I would make trips back to Italy with my family. I remember one of the first trips we made when I was older, and I think that the sense of being Italian was possibly more evident in my mind, you know, it just took a stronger place than it had before. And I remember here in America feeling Italian, but then I remember on that first return trip when I got to Italy, kind of realizing, wow, I'm actually really American. (laughs) Yeah.
1: That's yeah. almost a direct quote from when it, something I wrote on, the, on my website once where I said something like, you know, nothing will make an Italian-American feel more American than a trip to Italy. But, it, right. you know, it's funny. But, uh, you know, at the same time, I mean, as you know, Dolores, there are lots of similarities in, in more in the spirit than perhaps the actual details. You know, I mean, that sense of family and the sense of community, as Anthony alluded to earlier. So that is very consistent between the Italian-American experience and, and what is still alive and well in Italy.
2: How did you feel in that sense, though? Did you experience, you know... Culture
1: shock? <laughs>
2: yeah, kind of. I mean, did you did you have the same idea of, like, I'm Italian, I'm going back to my homeland, and then you got there, and you were like, I'm so, I'm very American.
1: Yeah, definitely. Another thing I write about is, you know, I just really suffered with the fashion, the style, the dress and all that. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. I, get, I got I got a lot, took a lot of harassment from Italian friends about the way I dressed. My pants were too baggy and, <laughs> and my shirt was the wrong color. And, you know, how come I didn't wear a scarf when I went outside and, right. you know, all, all this kind of stuff. I'm like, what are you talking about? I said, I can't, yeah. believe, I can't believe you even noticed that, number one. And, you know, number two, I mean, I, I thought I was dressing okay, but apparently, you know, I was doing it all wrong. So, you know, that sort of thing hits you. And then, you know, of course, the language too. So, you know, as Italian-Americans, you know, what we wind up hearing in the house is usually a form of dialect, which, you know, isn't really universally understood in Italy necessarily. And even in the U.S. Now, your, your family came here relatively recently, Dolores, but the ones that came 100 years ago, you know, they sort of spoke a mixture of, you know, sort of Neapolitan, Sicilian and immigrant English that was all mixed together and form its own dialect, really. So that's another thing was the language.
2: It's funny you mentioned the dress. I was actually going to say to you that I think it was probably the same trip. I was with my one of my older brothers and it it was weird. You know, we'd be walking around and I had this feeling in me that I was so American, very shockingly. Right. So I assumed it was me. But we would go to these different shops and and cafes and people would know that we were American. Right. And, And I just assumed it was me. So one, we were somewhere, I forget where we were, a pizzeria or something, and we just asked them, you know, how did you know we were American? And the guy said, he pointed to my brother, and he said, uh, that's an American uh, guy. You can tell by the way he's dressed.
1: Yeah, I've heard that. This one person told me the exact answer was, well, your pants are too baggy and your teeth are too perfect. Yeah.
2: And- <laughs> that's good. Yeah. Because American men, especially, do not dress like European men. It's very oh, well, different. That's,
1: that's for sure. Well, you yeah. know, my sister, I was in Italy with her once, and, uh, you know, she got spotted as an American because we were there in, was it March? Yeah, mid to late March. And she was outside walking around a nice day in Rome, and she had open toe shoes on, and, and everybody was just appalled that she would. We wear open-toed shoes in March, and, uh, wow. well, appalled, appalled, I think, confused is a better word. Mm. I mean, they didn't really understand it. Like, you know, why, why would she do that? Right. Uh, why would that be happening well, right now? <laughs> right, exactly. Maybe she's a special needs person or something, or I, I don't wow. know what she, they thought. I, I mean, they just really thought that it was so odd that she was dressed that way in, in the middle of March. It was seasonally inappropriate, so.
2: Right, according to the custom, yeah.
1: right.
0: Hey Rick, I I just want to talk a little bit about a topic that we talk about from time to time which is a little bit of a touchy topic, but you know the regional differences in Italy. And if you go to Rick's website, ricksulo.com, and he's got a great this start here button that gives some of his top most popular posts and there's one that you have about the northern southern Italians which I know has gotten yeah. a bit of comments and I mean we hear about it a lot doing this podcast. People that we interview talk about it and talk about the differences And I'm just wondering from your perspective, an American that's been there now, that's lived there for a while, if you can really see it there and how obvious it is, and maybe you could talk on it a bit.
1: Well, you know, I I have to say that a lot of these things, these subtleties between the different regions, and particularly if you want to see the larger division between the North and the South, is not immediately obvious to me. Even now, I have to sort of be looking for it, and I normally experience it sort of secondhand through an Italian person who maybe makes a comment or roll their eyes or something like that. and so. It's there. I think it's dwindling. I think, you know, like the rest of the world is getting smaller through the internet and, you know, satellite, t- cable, television, whatever you want to call it. I think Italy is getting smaller in that sense that they are less of a difference between the regions, although it's still there, you know, especially in the younger generations, I think they tend to be a little more open. They're moving around more than their parents and grandparents did. So sometimes they're from the South, they move the North to find a job. Right. And uh, then they have friends up there. So it exists. It's there. And I, th- I think it's gradually getting less, but um, it's going to be a while until it goes away. And, it, you know, there's the other side of it. It's like, is it a good thing that it even goes away? Now, of course, you don't want animosity between the regions or between the North and the South, but the cultural diversity is a wonderful thing. And I, I hate to see that go away.
2: Well, to that point, you know, you mentioned dialect earlier. And as you said, you know, my parents spoke. My, my father couldn't even pretend to speak proper Italian, you know, <laughs> right. it's it's true. It wasn't something he knew. My mother was a little bit better with it, but I noticed. And the same thing with, you know, my aunts and uncles back in Italy, but my cousins who would be around my same age, they almost rarely speak the dialect, I feel like, and they speak proper Italian more often. So that allows for that transfer, you know, to the north and such.
1: Right. No, that's a great point. You know, they're listening to popular music and watching TV shows where people are, you know, are speaking those things. You know, their parents or their grandparents didn't have; they had, you know, a couple of TV channels, and, and they were usually local broadcasts. So the person speaking on TV was probably had the same dialect as them, but. Like I say, it's got both sides. It's positive and negative. It's mostly positive, I think. But I I do hate to see those dialects disappear. As we were talking about the depopulation of some of the smaller villages, I mean, some of those little villages have their own dialect. I mean, little villages isolated in the mountains of, you know, Molise or Abruzzo or Sicily or Calabria or Puglia or whatever. And, you know, uh, some of them have this wonderful dialect that is almost ancient Greek. And uh, other places have, you know, dialect that's been influenced by the Arabs or by the Normans. You know, to see those gradually disappearing is kind of a sad thing in a way but you know i guess i, that's I agree <laughs>
2: i know it's true you you worry about losing that what it makes you know the area around napoli especially so napolitan you know and that's the language and that's the the energy of the napolitans and right <laughs> their attitude and everything yeah. that makes it makes them what they are you know you'd hate to think it gets lost with this kind of i don't know what it is this italian perfect sheen or something like that glazed over it you know <laughs>
1: Right well you know it's it's funny because one of the other examples i give sometimes is you know people go to venice and uh, they they want to hear the um, gondolieri sing o Solo mio but you know that's an napolitan song this, mm-hmm. the only reason he knows it is because the the tourists keep asking him for it <laughs> i mean right, you know right. he doesn't know that song in fact the gondolieri have their own musical traditions that's beautiful and wonderful kind of a haunting chanting thing that they do and, and it's really really pretty barco i guess they call it but the uh, you know, they sing solo meal because these tourists are paying eighty euros to sing it. So, you know, that's right, that, but that's, it's that's not what
2: native. Yeah, it's not it's not their thing. Yeah, that's true.
1: <laughs> but Anthony, where's where your family from? I suspect it's from Sicily, or
0: they're from half is from Sicily and the other half is from Salerno.
1: Ah, right. Just just south of uh, Naples. Correct,
0: just south of Naples, and I'm actually going back this summer. I've actually found my family in Italy recently, within the last awesome. year, in both Sicily and in Salerno. I'm visiting both this summer. So.
1: Oh, fantastic! Yeah, that's great. Oh man, you're gonna love it. Have you been to uh, Sicily before?
0: I've never been to Sicily. No.
1: Oh man, that's one of my favorite areas. I just I just love Sicily so much. I was talking on, today with on my show, my podcast, with uh, Saskia from uh, the Netherlands. She's a Dutch blogger, and she, her, and I were in Sicily as part of a blog tour in October. You know, we were there on the on the Alien Islands, and she made the comment that Sicily is so much richer and but also so different than the rest of Italy, and it really is. I mean, they've mm-hmm. they've really had a lot of invaders, for lack of a better word, that have really influenced that culture. So you see all kinds of influences there in Sicily. It's just it's just beautiful.
0: Yeah, it is. And we actually did a whole episode. For those of you listening, if you want to learn more about Sicily, we interviewed John Cahy, the author of Seeking Sicily in, in, in episode three, and we'll link to that. He really dove into a lot of stuff.
1: I got to go back and listen to that.
0: Yeah, it was, it was a good one. And it's interesting because I'm sure the listeners are listening and saying, well, geez, this all sounds pretty easy. You move to Italy, you, you start <laughs> blogging, you go on blog There's tours, all you go... All- <laughs> yeah, right. But I know from creating a lot of content that it's not that easy and building these resources like your podcast and your blog is definitely a lot of work. And it's certainly appreciated, I'm sure, by those who are utilizing the content. So to that end, I want to just talk a little bit, Rick, about you have some Kindle books on Amazon and Live Like an Italian, Eat Like an Italian, and Talk Like an Italian. And I just want to start with the Talk Like an Italian, because I think a lot of us that are Italian-Americans, just like you said, you had a great-grandmother or a grandmother that happened to speak Italian and you heard it here and then. Dolores obviously was around it more than that, being that her parents immigrated here. But going to Italy in the way you did and not really knowing the language, you had to learn it. So just give us a couple tips on how you were able to pick it up and how you were able to utilize it to get around.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's a good point because I studied the Italian language in just about every way you can imagine. You know, I bought the books, I bought the CDs. I took some classes at the local community college I eventually enrolled in a university program and took some classes there. I think different inputs work for different people. What finally got me working on it was the software program. I mean, you know, the software makes you sit in front of your computer and it forces you to interact. It's not perfect by any means, but I think short of full immersion with living in Italy, which is obviously the best way, you know, that's the best way you can study, I think, from the U.S. is, is to just get a good interactive software program and spend time with it every single day. I made it my routine. I did it, uh, you know, either in the morning when I woke up or after work, and I did it for 30 minutes. And it got me to the point where I could get by, where I could understand basic things. If people talk slow enough and and were patient with me, I I could make myself understood. But then, you know, of course, when you get there, the only secret is to just try to open your mouth and talk because you're going to make tons of mistakes. And my mistake when I first got to Rome was to just be too shy about my Mm -hmm. Italian and always thinking I'm going to be saying something stupid. And I usually did. But it's really the only way you you learn. So, you know, I, I would say if someone's preparing for a trip, you know, there's lots of programs that you can buy. There's some that are free online. Use a program and supplement that with some books and movies and stuff. Those are great supplements. And then when you go there, just try to be as uh, as bold as possible and don't worry. The, the only hard thing I have to say is, especially in places like Rome, is that whenever they hear you struggling with Italian, they immediately switch to English because a lot of them want to practice their English uh, with a native speaker. Right. So even if their English isn't much better than your Italian, they're going to sort of keep pushing the English because it's, you know, oh, I found someone who speaks English. I want to practice with them. so. That's one thing you have to get past, but uh, it's a lot of fun in any case. And Italians, I've found, are extremely patient when it comes to helping you with your Italian. Unlike other countries where they sort of kind of give up on you, the Italians sort of kind of, they they feel almost obligated to help you through it, coax you along, and to give you some help. So
0: That's good to know because I've heard that about Italians. As long as you're making an effort, they really try to work with you and help you.
2: Rick, what was your family's reaction? I'm going a little bit off topic here, but what was your family's (laughs) reaction to your to your move and and kind of your return to your roots.
1: Yeah. You know, I I think there was some, you know, any family would be a little concerned about a child moving abroad, even if they're in their forties, which I was. So there is some of that, but I I think my dad was a little bit jealous, actually, (laughs) especially after he he came to visit me a couple of times in in Rome. He's like, you know, he wanted to do it too. And he's been studying Italian. He's got a, an Italian teacher that he talks with on Skype every day, or not every day, but like four or five days a week, and he studies his, his software program. And so he's getting pretty good because, you know, he grew up in this you know, the same apartment I was telling you, the three flat, and around his grandparents all the time. And he had all the grandparents around, and they all spoke Italian. And he never learned Italian as a kid because they didn't want him to speak it. They they would, uh, you know, chastise him if he tried to speak it. So he never learned a single word of it. But uh, he's been studying it now, and he's in his 70s. That's great. So.
2: Wow, that's great. We hear that a lot of the uh, older generations. We talk about that often with guests. The older generations kind of really wanted the kids to be American. And so they would not teach them where I think my parents, that later generation, it wasn't the same for them. And it was very important to them that we understood Italian.
1: Yeah, that was a big shift. I wrote a book review on my blog about a book by uh, Joseph Luzzi. He's a professor of Italian American or or Italian studies, rather, uh, at the Bard College. He wrote a book about his. He called my two Italies, and because his family was similar to yours, Dolores, where they came much later. In fact, his older brothers and sisters were born in Italy, and his and him and his younger siblings were born in the U.S. And you know, he grew up around this environment, and then he studied Italian in college, and then just like you, on the first trip back to Italy realized how American he was. Cause, mm-hmm. Well, his first trip back to Italy, he he went to study for a semester in Florence. And Florence, you know, didn't really have much in common with the little village near Naples where his, or Calabria right, rather, where right. his family was from. So, you know, it, it is a bit of a, a culture shock in a way. And it is even more shocking when it's, you know, supposedly your own culture that's shocking you or your own history that's shocking you. But I, I think it's really a rich, rich experience and a very valuable one for Italian Americans to go back to Italy. And, You know, it's great to go back on vacation, but I I like what Anthony is doing, you know, going back and and actually seeing the places where his family came from. I I think that is, you know, that's tenfold more rich than just seeing Florence, Rome, and Venice.
0: Yeah, now I just have to learn Italian so I can talk to them.
2: (laughs) (laughs) You've been been working on it. Yeah, I've been working (laughs) on
0: it. I am doing the Skype thing too. I have an instructor and his philosophy is like, you know, for an hour, we only speak Italian. That's all you can speak to me. And then he sends me exercises. So it's going well. Rick, if you don't mind, I'd like to ask, how'd you meet your wife? Yeah. How'd that happen?
1: Yeah, that was a funny story. I was at the um, in Rome, passing through. I hadn't planned on being in Rome. This is that, during that second three-month sabbatical that I took there. I call it a sabbatical. It sounds kind of important. <laughs> so I was passing through Rome just for a couple of days. It was sort of an unplanned stop during that trip, and I was looking on the internet for something to do. I'd been to Rome a few times already, and I thought, well, I don't really want to do any of the sites again, so maybe I can meet some locals. So I noticed one of the expat groups was having an aperitivo that night. So it's where Romans and expats go to meet and exchange language and, you know, just make connections, whether they be personal connections or business connections or whatever. You know, before they have the aperitivo, the hour before that, they have like a free Italian lesson. So I showed up there and um, that was my teacher. Wow. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. And so it was very, very coincidental happenstance. And that's that's what happened there. Or was it? uh, (laughs) Yeah, right. Or was it? this was i mean it was the, the one of the greatest settings in the world it's during the summertime the Apera TV are all done outdoors and the, you know along the, the banks of the Tevere river and you know all these little white tents are, are are set up and they're all lit up and everything's sparkling and the music's in the background and people are laughing and it's just like the best possible movie scene you can imagine right. and it's it's there and you're in the middle of it and so you know that certainly lends itself to meeting people and uh, you know an interesting thing too it just occurred to me is that at these type of aperitivos, these mix and mingles between expats and Italians, you know, more often than not, I'd say the greater percentage of Italians that go to these are are not Romans, at least I'm talking about in Rome, but they're people from other part of Italy who maybe in a way feel a bit like expats themselves, you know, separated from their family and in their, in their village, where they came from, usually in the South. And so that was kind of cool, too, to see sort of a mixture of... Italians at these things and, you know, in one place. Which, That's interesting, actually. Yeah, because they do tend to be sort of hang around with their, you know, their people, their own dialect, their own, you know, from their same area. So it was really interesting to, to see that environment where the, even the Italians were mixing together in a sense.
0: I'm going to have to check those out when I'm there for sure. Now, what language do you speak with your wife? Do you switch or?
1: What we try to do now is, is I speak English to my daughter and my wife speaks Italian to her. So we're trying to keep that sort of the criteria right now. Now she, she my wife speaks better English than I speak Italian, but you know, we go back and forth a lot and we just try to keep it as consistent as possible with with the baby although, it, you know, it doesn't always work out perfectly that way. That's that's sort of our goal, I guess. To,
0: so when the, when the baby's sleeping you guys just communicate whatever <laughs> feels more comfortable like whatever. Yeah. Okay.
1: Yeah, usually it's English, but it can be Italian, too, sometimes, depending on the context. Or if we're around English-speaking people and she wants to tell me something in secret, she'll tell me in Italian. Classic. (laughs)
2: Yeah. (laughs) I'm
1: sure Dolores is familiar with that.
2: Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. And the best times are are when you're in public and then the person sitting next to you also speaks Italian and you didn't know. (laughs) Uh, right. Growing up in New York, that happened more often than than not. Well, maybe not more often than not, but uh, more often... Than you wanted. And, and I have like siblings have stories about that. You just crack up laughing in the end. Yeah.
1: yeah. Hey, have you either of you guys ever been to the Little Italy in, in New York City?
0: Yeah, right. we actually we did an episode in the Italian American Museum there, actually.
1: That's right. I listened to that one. That's right. You know, I went to that museum myself about mm, two years ago when mm. I passed through there. And uh, I would, I loved seeing what they were doing there. I, I think uh, they're also not just the museum, but they had a lot of like evening cultural events and stuff yeah. like that too. Exactly. Yeah, But I mean, you know, I, when I wrote about it on my blog, I mean, it, it is a little disappointing to see that that area is is sort of shrinking and, and kind of disappearing, but that museum is, is sort of an anchor that's going to keep all that uh, there. And, and of course, the, you know, the restaurants and little businesses around right. it, but, yeah. but it, it really was kind of sad in a way to see that it's shrinking. But Again, my other comment was you know the Italians who came you know to New York a hundred years ago, I mean they always saw little Italy as being a stepping stone for them and their families. They wanted their sons and grandsons and granddaughters to move out of little Italy and into the greater American society, which is exactly what happened and now Italian you know Americans are integrated a hundred percent there isn't any I should say discrimination or anything like that anymore. So, you know, that was a mission accomplished for those those first generation that came over. Absolutely. Yes, yeah, it's,
2: it's it's the kind of there's two sides to the coin, right, of of the success of Italian-Americans. And we, we talk about this a lot as well on the show, which is, you know, we made it, <laughs> you, know, right. you integrate into the society, you're successful but then you lose what the little Italy's lose the community, you lose the grouping that, that you once had, you know, so it it doesn't come for free. Right. It comes, it comes at a cost. Yeah.
0: Well, Rick, how do you feel uh, that, you know, you've gone through now where you, you got to grow up with family in Chicago decided to go to Italy and reconnect. Now you, you're married to an Italian woman and now essentially like, you know, your child is born and, and learning Italian, very Italian. I mean, it's kind of like a full circle type of thing.
1: Yeah, that's a good point. You know, I never thought of it in that terms, but uh, that's very true. And I, I'm very proud of the fact, well, she's half Italian, obviously. I mean, I'm I'm an American citizen, but you know, I'm very proud of the fact that she isn't a half Italian, that she speaks Italian. You know, I mean, you wouldn't believe, even at two years old, the things that she does that um, just seem so Italian to me. Like she had, yeah, I mean, like she won't, for example, she won't eat yellow cheese. Like she, if I try to give her some <laughs> cheddar cheese or something, she's like, no. Skip <laughs> she won't eat it. She'll ask for Romano or she'll ask for, for mozzarella. I mean, she'll ask for it by name. She won't eat the yellow cheese and, um, you know, things like that. I mean, she loves pasta. She has pasta almost every day, and she insists on pasta every day. And, she, you know, she you try to give her some rice or, you know, a hamburger or something like that, and she just won't eat it. And, uh, you know, so th- those sort of things, I mean, it's I, I kind of smile when I see that in her. You know, you know I, I would like her to be a little more open-minded on her food choices. But, uh, you know, <laughs> she's got her ways about her, and she's very, very uh, culturally indoctrinated in both countries. So
0: That's great. Yeah, it is. It's cute. So where do you go from here, Rick? Are you you staying in Italy? Are you still going to be to the blogging, podcasting? What are the next few years kind of hold for you?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I'm going to keep going with the blogging and podcasting for sure. You know, the question of where we're going to sort of put up a permanent roots is a tough one because, you know, we want to do what's best for our daughter, obviously, and she can't go back and forth forever. Right now she's two and a half and it's okay. But when she starts school and everything, that's just not going to be a reality. So, you know, that decision is going to have to be made pretty soon. But I'll always, no matter what, keep going with the blogging, with the podcasting, and you know, having Italy as part of my life and part of my culture. I mean, it's my daughter is half Italian, so I mean, that's always going to be really important to me that she hangs on to that part of her heritage. So that's it.
0: All right, good. Well, I guess we'll keep up with you on the blog. So we'll kind of, I'm sure you'll be telling people on there where you're at and what's going on and and keeping everything going, which is great. And I guess kind of before we close up here, just. Obviously, most of our our listeners are Italian-Americans. They're in the US. What are some things you can share? Like if someone's going to take a trip to Italy, and obviously not everyone can go for three months, but even if someone's going to go for a couple of weeks, two or three weeks, what are some spots? I mean, obviously, Rome is a big one for you, but Mm -hmm. what are some spots that you've encountered that really like are ones that you're like, man, these are amazing things that people have to see?
1: Okay, well, you know, first, I think you brought up a good point. You know, if you've never been before and it's your first time, it's really hard to bypass Rome, Florence, and Venice, and, you know, or Naples and Milan, but honestly, if they really are interested in connecting with their Italian heritage, then those are kind of cities that they almost would have to avoid. I would suggest Sicily is a wonderful place for many Italian-Americans since many of their families came from there, so I love this little track in the southeast corner of Sicily. That would include Syracuse, Modica, Ragusa, Chicli. This area to me is just amazing. It's called the Baroque part of Sicily because of the, all the architecture that's there. To me, that, that's something that people can go to and, and still get sort of that feeling of maybe where their ancestors came from. It'd be harder to do that in, in Rome and Venice, you know. So that would be a big one. Everybody's talking about Puglia now. I've never been there, but everybody says that's the next Tuscany. That's always, the, every every year there's the next Tuscany, Tuscany. But uh, Puglia, I guess, is the one that everyone talks about right now. Abruzzo, in you know, in the mountain regions just east of uh, Rome, has also been popular. Now, I just recently discovered the Ligurian coast, and that's kind of like my new favorite area for me. So this, I told you, I went to Levanto last year, yep. and that area is kind of my new discovery because I had never been there before until last year. So I like this area just north of the Cinque Terre. You can still visit the Cinque Terre without sort of being in the middle of the mob scene there.
0: That's cool. That's our first stop, actually. Yeah. La Ricci, or I think La or somewhere in that area, it's like a ferry ride from the Cinque Terre.
1: That's the way to do it. I mean, you know, see it that way. I think people staying in the Cinque Terre, especially in high season, are going to be mobbed. So it's beautiful
2: there, though. So
1: beautiful. Yeah.
0: This is all really interesting, Rick, and my family's actually from Syracuse. Oh, wow. In Sicily, so we're going to be there as well. So I'm going to check out your podcast, because I saw you just did an episode on uh, on Eastern Sicily. So
1: yeah, that's one of my favorite towns. On the island of Ortigia, I mean, you just have to stay there for a couple of days. And oh, my God, that's one of my favorite places in all of Italy, actually.
2: Wow. Every time he talks about his trip, I feel like he's rubbing it in my face. <laughs> 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 Every episode. Are you, going
1: back any time? Are you going back anytime soon, Dolores? Or? I
2: want to, but no, not as soon as Anthony is. But, you know, it's definitely in the cards. It'll happen. It's just not time for me yet. Yeah.
0: We'll put a podcast tour together. That's what you yeah.
1: do. I, you know, I hope you're going to plan a podcasting live from where you're going to be, Anthony, because, you know, I did that a little bit from Sicily. Actually, the one today that you'll hear was recorded in Sicily. You know, that's a fun thing to do. It's tough to work out the equipment, but you're obviously much better at than me. Your, the quality of your show is a lot higher, but, you know, that's fun. It's fun to do it there live on the scene, and I hope you get the chance to do that because I'll be listening for sure.
0: Yeah, no, that, that's awesome. We will do that. and And I guess as a last kind of parting goodbye, Rick, People are really thinking about making the move or at least going for a longer trip, which I know a lot of Americans think about doing. What are just some thoughts that you have looking back on everything that you've gone through?
1: Yeah, well, you, you got to try to simplify as much as possible. And that, that means a couple of things. That means certainly don't bring as much stuff as you think you need because you, you don't and you can buy it there and they have everything there you need unless you have some, I don't know, medicines or something you need to take. But otherwise, travel really light and you know get what you need when you get there. I would recommend not buying a car, renting a car. I I would try to use the trains as much as possible and, you know, find a home base and kind of spread out from there. In other words, you know, if it's whether it's Rome or or somewhere in Tuscany or whatever, you know, rent an apartment for that extended period of time. If you're going to be there a while, settle into some place and sort of integrate into that little community as much as you possibly can. And then just take your day trips from there. Rather than moving around a lot, you know, find one spot where you want to be. Stay there and, and take little weekend trips to other little towns. That's awesome. That's my advice. Yeah, that's Yeah, good mm. yeah travel light. Keep it as uncomplicated as possible, which means don't rent a car. And um, sometimes you have to to get to little villages. But honestly, parking is a nightmare and, it, you know, Driving is much different there, so.
2: Yeah, you better know what you're doing when you're driving in Italy. It's no
0: joke.
1: Yeah. <laughs> that's right. Oh. Yeah. You need to be an offensive driver. You have mm-hmm. to. You can't use the brakes too much. You got to. You know, have one foot on the accelerator all the that's time. That's right. So.
0: Well, that's good. Well, the big message is travel light, which means I have to tell my wife to listen to this podcast episode. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, listen. You know, you got to tell her if you just travel light. You know, don't pack too much. You can buy some, you know, nice clothes when you get there. You there know. you go. Yeah, there
0: you go.
2: Pitch it that yeah. way. <laughs> <laughs>
0: All right. Well, it's Rick from rickzula.com. Rick, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, We had a real blast talking with you, and we're going to follow you for sure on your journey through your website, through your podcast, and I'm I'm sure some of our listeners will as well.
1: Listen, it was a real honor here. You guys have had some incredible guests on here, and I'm honored that you asked me to be here, and I really enjoyed this today. It was a lot of fun.
2: Wonderful. Thanks for coming. We appreciate it.
1: Thanks. Ciao.
0: Ciao. Now it's time for our Italian-American Stories segment. All right, now it's time for the Italian-American story segment of the episode. This is the part of the episode where we try to bring you back to your family gatherings, conversations. We try to play a recording or a story from one of our relatives or one of our listeners just to kind of, again, keep those traditions alive. Today's Italian-American story segment is brought to you by Select Italy. Select Italy designs custom itineraries and books a whole range of products and services. Including fascinating tours, romantic wedding or honeymoon trips, along with ticketing services for museums and musical events in Italy. Visit SelectItaly.com to learn more. And again, we're we're grateful for having Select Italy as a sponsor to the show. Dolores and I do a lot of work on the show, but as you know, as a listener, the show is free. So to be able to have some support to that end is wonderful. So we thought that we'd talk about the Feast of St. Joseph today in the Italian American Stories segment because It is that time of the year. It is a very big kind of Lenten feast in the Italian traditions, especially Southern Italy. And so what we're going to do is first, Dolores is going to read a nice note that we got from one of our listeners about St. Joseph's Day. And then you're going to hear a brief interview with a gentleman named Justin Dimitri, who is a writer for lifeinitaly.com. He wrote a brilliant article about St. Joseph's Day. He's a Sicilian-American who now lives in Massachusetts, still in a Sicilian community. And him and I really dug into the holiday and kind of walked through his article a bit. So with that, let me kick it over to Dolores to read the note from our listener.
2: Yeah, Anthony, as I'm always saying and commenting on social media, we love hearing from you guys. We really do. We love hearing from our listeners, whether it's, you know, through social media, whether you tweet at us or whether you send us emails. So we wanted to share this letter from one of our listeners, Avita Mitchell. And she writes us and says, Dear Anthony and Dolores, I really enjoy listening to your podcast. I think it is absolutely wonderful. To my knowledge, I have no Italian ancestry, but I am a Roman Catholic. I'm from an area near Lafayette, Louisiana. As you know, many Italians immigrated to New Orleans. We had the pleasure of having a priest of Sicilian descent assigned to our church parish, and he brought the St. Joseph's altar to our parish. My grandmother made bread so she volunteered to make the traditional breads that would go on the altar. My grandmother's side of the family is mostly French on her mother's side and Russian Jewish on her father's side. However, she could make a mean tapa tapa bread and the braided egg Easter bread. A spaghetti dinner was also part of this. The making of the sauce was left to some of the Italian ladies of the parish. I'd say there were about eight women that were working on it. I vaguely remember creative differences on how the sauce should be made. <laughs> one did it one way and one did it another. Another thing I remember was they would do a rosary and alternate the decades in different languages, English, French, and Italian. I thought that was a really beautiful letter. Vita. thank you for writing it. Um, both Anthony and I enjoyed reading it. And it really gives us you know, a very personal glimpse into this tradition that you're about to hear more
0: about. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that Vita, this is exactly what we want this segment to be because people that haven't had the chance to experience the holiday can now get a little feel for it. And to that end, you're about to hear the interview now with Justin Dimitri, where we'll dive into the holiday just a little bit more. All right. And now I have with me here in this special segment that we are doing for St. Joseph's Day, Justin Dimitri. Justin is a writer for lifeinitaly.com and I was just doing research on St. Joseph's Day and I came about a, a wonderful article that he wrote about this Italian American tradition and I contacted him to have him come on here for a few minutes and talk about the special day. Justin, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. All right, so Justin, before we dive into this great article that you wrote about St. Joseph's Day, which we will link to by the way for everyone in the show notes. Justin, tell us a little bit about yourself,
3: about your background. Sure. Well, I am a sicilian american i grew up in gloucester massachusetts as part of a sicilian fishing family i grew up in the traditional neighborhood uh i wouldn't we don't really use the term little italy but that's really where our group got settled within, is in a neighborhood called the fort it's uh still the site of our annual guest at the saint peter i uh started writing for uh life in italy about 10 years ago maybe a little more than that now mm. and uh, It all stemmed from um, my backpacking travels to Europe and also uh, my background in anthropology and my love of, you know, the the way I grew up and the things that I witnessed.
0: So with that being said, Justin, let's dive in because obviously the reason we have you on here is to talk a little bit about St. Joseph's Day, March 19th. It's a big day for Italians and Italian-Americans that still celebrate the tradition. And I want to talk to you, I want to get into a little bit like the altar and the food and all that, but I want to first just start in general and, and Tell us about what this holiday means in Italy, St. Joseph's Day.
3: How it started uh, was similar to a lot of the uh, traditions that we are still passed on. It really has roots in the peasant traditions of Sicily and southern Italy. Very religious, of course. It's a Lenten feast. Once again, it, it goes back to uh, the intercession of the saints, petitioning saints for either um, help in a cause or... Uh, thanking the saint for help in the past, uh, kind of like i like to consider it like a, like a holy insurance policy. And so w- with um, with St. Joseph, like so many other of these saints' days, you know, the people were given a relief of their burden. Um, apparently, there was one of the many droughts that Sicily had gone through. I believe it was the 14th or 15th century. The drought was abated roughly on the day of St. Joseph, his saint day, uh, which is March 19th, which falls in Lent. So in order to celebrate, they had to have a Lenten feast, which means no meat. And what they had left basically was either wild root vegetables like fennel or animal fodder, which is the chickpeas and the fava beans. Uh, that's what was left, but that's what they had. You know, just like every family that comes from Italy, you know, you make the best with what you have around. That's why where, where we come from multi-generations of great cooks. It's just utilization.
0: Is it true that it's also, like, in Italy, it's kind of like a Father's Day, the day, or?
3: I'm not sure how it's celebrated today. Uh, I've never been a part of it in my travels to Italy. I I never quite made it through during St. Joseph's Day, at least in the parts of the country where it's celebrated. As far as I know, it's always been more celebrated in the South. Okay. The traditional foods, for instance, like a a Zeppeli, I believe that's more of a, a Neapolitan thing than strictly Sicilian, but... Because there's so much interchange down there and there's a lot of commonalities, you know, south of Messagiorno, I think it kind of grew that way. And now today, I, I really can't say because Italy has modernized so much. And just like today, you know, I, I follow these traditions not through faith, but more of through tradition.
0: So talk just briefly about the altar. There's a part of, the, part of your article that talks about the St. Joseph altar.
3: Yeah, I don't know about uh, your family, but I know uh, growing up, you know, there were a lot of older people. You know, they were old when I was a kid. And I felt like, you know, whether they were related or or friends, you know, you go into these people's houses and everyone had an altar. And some of them were set up strictly for St. Joseph's Day and were big elaborate affairs. And, of course, you have, you know, set aside some of the traditional icons of St. Joseph's Day, like the oranges and lemons and the fava beans. But others, I recall, uh, including at my, uh, my own great grandmother's house, uh, that St. Joseph's altar was there all year long, and you know, over the years, you know, you get statues and gifts, and that altar grows. <laughs> One of the ones I remember as a kid, she lived down the street. me, she must have been eighty-five when I was a kid, and her altar was an took up an entire corner of her living room. Wow! And of course, that was up all year long. So there were elaborate affairs, and again, it's. It all ties into that intercession of the saints. I grew up in a time, you know, it's a little different now. But the older people, my, more my of my great-grandmother's generation, those ladies did the rosary every night, regardless. Let alone the novenas before the, the feast day, like Saint Joseph's.
0: Hmm, yeah, interesting. And you talked a little bit about the food, which was the fava beans and the non-meat food because it's a Lenten feast. And again, we're going to link to uh, Justin's article, which was great. He gives a description of the food that's cooked traditionally on this day and pictures of it, which are colorful and interesting. I'm just going to read a quick paragraph here from Justin's article, which talks a little bit about the food. In my experiences, every family makes it a little different, all of them delicious, but includes the traditional ingredients of fava beans, fennel, cauliflower, chickpeas, sometimes, and flat. Brought homemade pasta noodles. The consistency ranges from a pasta and vegetable soup to a pasta dish with a little broth to pasta in a thick paste. Instead of cheese, many people serve the dish with, quotes, poor man cheese, breadcrumbs, which symbolizes the sawdust of St. Joseph the carpenter. Besides the pasta, other dishes may include fish, shellfish, and of course bread, but traditionally no meat since the feast falls during Lent. So again, that's just again a little bit of a a little bit of a flavor. And Justin, we do appreciate you coming on here. Obviously, you've had a lot of experience in this holiday. You've done some research on it. You've been exposed to it quite a bit with some of the stuff you have gave us. And it's interesting. I mean, my grandmother, Josephina Giuseppina, it's her birthday, March 19th. So it's, it's just such a big day for Italians. And, and like you said, too, in your article, you know, with the world today, like trying to keep the traditions alive are sometimes challenging. And we talk about that a lot here on the podcast. And like you said, Italy's changed. It's been modernized. So I think trying to have these little segments on the show where we get to talk to people like yourself who can kind of recount some of the history of the holidays, I think is a good thing because there are unfortunately some Italian-Americans that haven't got to experience it. So again, thank you so much for the time today. And we'll kind of keep up with you on on your writing.
3: Oh, uh, thanks for having me. Thanks for reading the article. And um, yeah, anytime you want to have me back on the show, uh, just get in touch. Great.
0: So I hope you enjoyed the note from our listener and the short interview there with Justin. It was great to have these stories. We want more of these stories. And we'll tell you in a minute here at the end of the show how to get them to us. But before I do that, I do again want to recognize our new sponsor for this segment, Select Italy. Select Italy is the ultimate source for travel to Italy and offers a wide array of superior Italian travel products and services, including customized itineraries, fascinating tours, romantic getaways, unique and fun culinary classes. Yacht charters, transportation, hotel reservations, villa bookings, tickets for museums and musical events, and more. Anything and everything you need for optimum travel to Italy is possible with Select Italy. Their helpful travel planners in Chicago, New York, and Shanghai are always ready to give the best advice on when and where to visit, while the Florence support staff is there to help should you need anything while you are in Italy. Always eager to introduce their clients to great new destinations, the company has expanded its offerings and travel services, to the Balkans with the launch of Select Croatia. Visit selectitaly.com and selectcroatia.com. And I just want to say that we've been to the website. I went through it extensively. I had a phone call with a couple of Select Italy representatives. You know, this isn't just, we're not just taking on any sponsor. Obviously, Dolores and I want to make sure that this is a company that's doing good things for the Italian-American community, and they certainly are. It's very easy to navigate, and I started doing some stuff on there for my own trip to Italy this summer. So with that, I hope that you enjoyed this episode of the Italian American Podcast. You can go to italianamericanpodcast.com and sign up for our newsletter and you will get all new episodes delivered to your inbox and also be the first to know about any new resources we are creating for Italian Americans. Again, that's italianamericanpodcast.com. And Dolores, why don't you just remind our listeners how to engage with us on social media as we close this one out.
2: I would love to. Amici, you can find us on Instagram at Italian American on Twitter at Ital American I-T-A-L American and on Facebook at Italian American Podcast Con piacere